Hey, everybody. It's Jen the Builder. And Corey. And? Stephen Camp. Hey. Hey, Stephen. Stephen Camp is going to be a fixture of Take the Elevator on Wednesdays throughout the month of April. At least that's what we planned, Stephen. Are we still doing that? We can do it. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, I'm not saying he is a doctor, but I'm saying he's so knowledgeable. It reminds you of a doctor. So I feel like I'm in very good company with a lot of wisdom. That's one of the best companies to be in, I think, especially when we're still learning about the whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So the whole thing, guys, as a reminder, is autism awareness moving into autism acceptance. That's really our desire and our goal by the end of April is that we feel so comfortable knowing what autism is, what it looks like, and how we live with people and accept that everyone is different and that we become a people that can accept those differences. And yeah, and because this is such a wide array of things that people are dealing with, we want to get used to understanding how to act and talk and walk amongst this, opposed to pretending like it doesn't exist, like we do with so many other different things in our lives. Right? Don't we do that an awful lot? Just ignore it. Mm -hmm. It's going to go away. Think it doesn't matter when, oh boy, does it matter. And it doesn't go away. Definitely doesn't do that. Yep. And sometimes it has a funny way of popping up and impacting people. So when you ignore things, sometimes it shows up when you least expect it. Absolutely. So here's to being aware and to accepting. Every day, elevate. Every day, elevate. Okay, we are doing Would You Rather before we get into the conversations that we just said we're going to talk about. Stephen, I think you picked the number last time. So, I did. So, Corey, would you please do the honors? Yes, I've pre-picked the number, and it is 42. And that says, would you rather, drumroll, do I get a drumroll? Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> would you rather make a mean person cry or a sweet person laugh? Hmm. Mm. Okay, okay. So, I've been through my mean stage in life. It does not pay off to be mean to anyone, even if they're mean. It doesn't mm. pay off to be hurtful or make anyone cry. And I know that sounds, you know, kind of soft if you're a hardhead or you like to make people cry or you're a bully. But I'm just not into that. You know, I, I would much rather make a sweet person laugh and just enjoy that opposed to going the opposite direction. What do you think, Stephen? You make a great point. But I think when looking at, you know, hurt and crying, that we can actually kind of knock down that wall that the mean person has and really see the true root of why they're mean to people. So I would think to make them cry because then you can really get to know them a little bit better. Oh, okay. I'm with that too. Good perspective on yeah, that. I that's like why it's that. always nice to have different people answer this question. Right. That was a little cheap for me because I was going to go make a person laugh because it's easier, a sweet person. And I go that way because you're nice to me. You bring me joy. So therefore, I'm going to give something in return. But there we go with if we don't agree with behavior, you know, we either reciprocate it or just ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. I don't want to deal with you. So I'm going to change my mind and just say I want to deal with mean people. So I'd rather make them cry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got to think bullies are bullies for a reason. They bully people or they're mean to people because of something that's personally happened to them. So they just project that meanness onto others. But there's really underlying hurt there. Let's see. Corey, you want to change your answer? 
I'm just mm, No, I'm going to stick with my answer. I, I mean, there has to be a balance. And, and we know this. And I don't mind people having different opinions. We can agree to disagree when it's something that you disagree on. But I think we both agree that there needs to be both in the world in order for it to be balanced out properly. There you go. Food for thought. If you had to make someone laugh, how would you do it? Let us know on jenthebuilder.com. Every day, elevate. Every day, elevate. I wanted to give a little bit of something to look forward to for next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the power of parents. And we're going to have some parents on the show with Stephen talking about the challenges, the wins, the joyous moments, the frustrating moments of being parents for kiddos with autism. But today, Stephen, we wanted to talk more about the symptoms and provide the education on what the autism spectrum disorder looks like. Can we start with communication and how this looks? So with communication, a lot of individuals on the spectrum, either they develop language or they don't develop language. So they have no spoken words or oral language to communicate their wants and needs. Some individuals on this spectrum, they develop what's called echolalia, which is kind of like parrot talk, where they repeat what is heard. So this is a common developmental language milestone that typically developing children develop at age one and two, but it goes away over time and they develop more appropriate language and conversation skills. So individuals on the spectrum, they usually get stuck there with the echolalia. So the more severe or intense it is on the spectrum, that's something they might keep. But if they're low on the spectrum, like if they have Asperger's, that might be something that goes away or just normalizes. Yeah. And some individuals with, with Asperger's, they may have the most sophisticated language. And ah. so relation is very proper, very on point. What they lack is intonation and in voice. They say it so they may be more robotic. And then the pragmatic skills that go along with communication and conversation. Stephen, can you break down pragmatic, please, just for the listeners that may not know what that word is? So pragmatic is basically like problem solving skills in conversation. It could also be turn-taking, making appropriate interjections into conversations, staying on topic, switching you know topics. It can also be the nonverbal gestures that go along with conversation, nonverbal communication, facial expressions, things like that. Good to know and good to understand because we know that some regular functioning kids can have some of those same issues in school and, and outside of in the home as well. They definitely can. When we're looking at neurotypical kids, what we call quote unquote normal developing children, yeah, they can have some speech and language issues. They can have some communication or articulation, how they pronounce things. But they usually with proper therapy that they can outgrow it or, you know, move past it. Right. Gotcha. Then the other aspect of autism is the restrictive and repetitive behavior portion. And so with this, they really struggle for sameness and routine. They may eat the same foods every day or have a limited or restricted diet. They may have some rituals. They have to do something in a certain sequence every day. They have difficulty with changes or disruptions into their routines. They may line things up in a certain way or get fixated on where certain things are located in the house. So say if you rearrange the room, they may not be able to cope with that and they may 
insist on the chair going back to that corner. Got it. So that's their behavior. So in behavior, Stephen, I just remember seeing different shows and even the movie Rain Man comes to mind. But I just remember seeing a lot of rocking. And there's a terminology that I'm not familiar with, um, like stimming. What is that? So we refer to that as self-stemming behavior uh, or stereotypy. So it's where they do the same movement. Some of them will flap. Some of them will like wiggle their fingers by their ears. The rocking back and forth, pacing, spinning in circles one direction over and over. And that kind of consumes a lot of their day. So it's kind of a little quirky and Uh a little in terms of like the outsiders, right? We're like, well, we usually don't do that because we, of course, we're people's thinkers, right? We don't want people having bad thoughts about us. We're individuals on the autism spectrum. They're more object thinkers. And so their whole life is consumed of objects that they can manipulate where we have the social awareness like, hey, Stephen, it's not really cool to, to, you know, make this gesture in public. Yeah, um, I actually worked in a population where there were children with autism. And what I really found interesting is that the people that were working directly with the children, they just developed these skills to be able to cope with these behaviors in a classroom setting. And so it didn't stop the flow. It didn't slow the flow down. Mm. They just redirected and got right back on task, so to speak, and continued to teach the class. And I was just so amazed at how easy it was for someone who had good information, a lot of background, and a good understanding of how this population is interacting with not only other people, but within themselves. Right. So you bring up the next topic I was going to talk about is social interaction. Mm -hmm. We're talking about these kids with other kids. Earlier, we mentioned bullying and someone actually on my Facebook sent me a message about bullying and her son going through that. So what does this look like for kiddos with autism? What's their social interaction like? Well, Social interaction is so complex. People are so unpredictable. And and like I said before, uh, individuals on the spectrum, they strive for sameness. They like things in a certain sequence or pattern. And so with humans, we're so unpredictable. We can say the same word, but we can say it five to six different ways. Mm -hmm. And so they don't know how to anticipate what we're going to do due to our unpredictability. So it gives them increased levels of anxiety. And sometimes it takes a lot of effort for them to to initiate conversations or they may have scripts that they use, so conversation scripts or, you know, like broken language skills. Kids just look at them. They already know that they're different. And so, you know, you have the jerks of the world. Are you going to be compassionate or be a jerk? And so it's usually the jerks out there that are bullying the kiddos who are different. Yeah, if I can jump in there, I I can attest to this. So we worked with, well, I worked with multiple populations. The terminology has changed. I did work with a a population during my day that was called SH, which was severely handicapped. I also worked with a ADHD population and a DD population. And they kept the autism children separate from everyone because even the ADHD kids would make fun or bully the autism kids. And even some of the DD, which is, well, AD, uh, attention deficit. It just was one of those things that it was weird to see all these populations on the same campus, but one would think that they were higher than another one and still make fun or try to bully. And so I can understand where Steven is coming from 
because you don't want anybody experiencing that type of behavior. So to separate them, I thought it was a pretty smart thing to do. And especially with the the teachers that were working with each different population would be able to redirect that group and explain to them why it's inappropriate to do that. Well, and then with certain populations, they're in denial of their own intellectual abilities um, because they look normal. They're probably within the, the 70 to 80 range in their IQ. So they have a slight learning disability. They have, you know, the ADHD. And so there's specific learning disabilities that they have. And so they're also a target for the general education population. They already, general education already knows that they're the slow ones in the class, right? So then they're putting it into a different class so they can get more individualized instruction. And so then they look at, oh, well, then you have this other population who are maybe lower in functioning. And they're like, oh, we're not like them. And so then that's where those derogatory terms come out that are so disgusting. Because I mean, as society continues to evolve, these words just, they become disgusting over time. And they don't Uh, go away. What's up with that? How do we not gravitate away from those disgusting words? I don't know. Yeah, because I mean, early on, people with developmental disabilities, they were referred to as imbeciles and idiots. And that was actually the terminology. So, I mean, that is how we refer to them. And then society got a hold of it. And then it goes into, you know, mentally retarded. And then the retard word comes in. And then society just continues, oh, and those are those insulting words now that are used to describe a certain person or a certain class of, of individuals. So for this population, Stephen, you mentioned anxiety. What does depression look like? I'm hesitating from asking these questions because I don't want to be insulting. But because they seem somewhat detached, do they experience depression based on how people are treating them? Definitely. So individuals on the spectrum, there is 50% of them who have two or more mental health conditions. So they're called comorbid conditions, right? Depression, anxiety, those are often the comorbid disorders that go along with it. And then uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And there's one that's called catatonia, where it's the high risk is in adolescence. And this is like uncontrollable body jerking and stuff like that. Almost looks like seizures, but you just can't control it. And you're awake and you're present for it. And in regards to development, 60% of them have, you know, normal to above normal intelligence. So even though that they have a diagnosis of autism, they're still normally functioning individuals. Right. And the ones who are more targeted are the ones that are more aware of people socially. So the ones with classic autism that are more aloof or by themselves, they're not aware of what people are saying about them. The ones that are more social now are getting the rejection. They're getting the teasing, the bullying, the loneliness, because all they want to do is have a friend, right? Who doesn't want a friend? Who doesn't want a girlfriend or a boyfriend to share their life with? And these are things that they long for. And so it's only depression or anxiety develop with that. Right. So I understand that we hope that they get diagnosed early on in life because they're, like you've said in the previous episode, that there are treatment options for kiddos with autism. And you provide one of those. And we're going to go more into that. What does the success look like? What what does it take for someone with autism at a young age growing into adulthood? Can they live a normal life? Are they able to live alone? Can they go to college and get married? Like, what does that look like? That's always our hope. We never know the trajectory of someone's life, right? 
we know what research says, and they said intensive early intervention can really equip these individuals with the necessary skills so that they can have a meaningful life and so that they can be more productive, more independent. There's many programs that focus on employment and supported living. And so I think that's any parent's goal is you want your child to meet their, their maximum potential. And sometimes their maximum potential may be that they still reside in the family home, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe they have to brush their teeth versus some people, you know, that they have a job that they go to and there's someone that comes in and helps them pay their bills and make sure. And so those are different services and supports that they can have someone coming in to provide in-home services to them. Got it. So can you give us a day in the life of you? What does treatment look like? Serving that population, I can imagine, brings you great joy and its challenges. Walk us through a day in your life. Well, each morning that I wake up, I don't know what I'm getting myself into for the day because you don't know what you're walking into because I am only present in a child's house for a few hours. So, you know, I have my game plan. Okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. We're going to work on communication. He's going to get dressed today. You know, we're going to practice brushing his teeth. But when I get there, mom could say, oh, he didn't sleep all night or he got up multiple times or, you know, I'm running late. I haven't fed him breakfast. So you never know what you're walking into. So you always have to be able to adapt to Mm -hmm. what's going on. So it's really unpredictable. So you have to be quick on your feet. And you have to have an agenda, but then you also have to be able to throw the agenda out sometime and kind of go with the flow. So it could be I'm walking in 9 a.m. and the kid's feeding himself breakfast. Then the kid throws a tantrum on the floor, maybe at the side of me or knowing what's next. And so and then I can go to another kid's house. You know, at 12 o'clock, we're working on individualized programs. We're jumping on a trampoline. We're playing with stuffed animals. And then I can go to another kid. and. The cops are there. Parents are in crisis. You know, he did something. He touched one of the siblings inappropriately. And so you just never know what the day has in store for you. But you always have to be quick on your toes and know how to to appropriately respond to these things. Incredible. I, I like that you gave us a very good bird's eye view of your day. But I have a question that focuses just a little bit outside of your situation. And that question is, how early does independent living skills get introduced to a child with autism? Well, we always look at a developmental chart and what's developmentally appropriate. And so when you're looking at independent living skills, that can be like household chores, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm always wanting to teach the kid how to do something around the house. And it could be as simple as wiping up a spill that they've made, putting their dish in the sink, learning how to put on their shirt, putting on their shoes. So even self-help stuff, So we're looking at self-help, we're looking at independent living, and then we're also looking at community and vocational skills. So we're looking at, can we identify money? Can we identify time so we can start teaching them orientation? So I'm thinking from the very onset, we have independent living skills in mind, and then it's just working towards those higher level skills over time. I really like that too, because when, when I look at that for what it's worth, what you see is, is that a child with autism has the potential ability to go out and get a job, take care of themselves, and sometimes at a more higher rate than what they would call a normal functioning child because they don't get those particular skills. And they definitely want jobs. But the only Mm. disadvantage is that there's not many employers that are willing to hire these individuals. Mm, That's sad. All of the 
state funding and support and all of these resources and human services that are there for employment, there's no job for that. Stephen, what you do is ABA, that's applied behavior analysis. And there's a lot of, my understanding is there's consequences and rewards, motivation and all that. Being a nurse and totally into case management, do you talk to the other specialists that are involved in the care of these kids? Definitely. So coordination and collaboration is key. And like any child, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a whole army to <laughs> on the autism spectrum, right? The primary care doctor, the occupational therapist, the speech therapist, the special ed teacher, the general ed teacher, the neurologist. We all have to work collaboratively and cohesively together because we're not treating this child alone. And we need to come together and make sure that we're treating the whole child instead of individual symptoms or skills. I love that. It sounds like a child is more on the severe part of the spectrum. It sounds like a lot of treatment. Do you think there can be an overabundance to where it overwhelms the child? And how do we keep that balanced? Definitely. So, I mean, you can overwhelm the child and you can overwhelm the parent. Yeah. Parents, they're trying to do everything that they can for their child. And typically, ABA is after school hours. So the kids have already been tortured, so to say, for six or seven hours at And then we're here again, and now we're going to make you do different things for for two to four hours, depending on what is appropriate for the dosage and duration of this kid's ABA services. So some of these kids are working longer days than most adults. They're pulling 40-hour weeks at the very minimum. And so, yeah, so there can be too much treatment, and you can have behaviors that are exacerbated by the onset of treatment. You can have parents that are burnt out. Some Mm -hmm. parents will be I've done this for two years. I need to take a break. But also prioritizing the service. In many states, ABA takes the lead, and these kids are checked out of school because, in all honesty, sometimes the school district isn't really making meaningful growth with these kids because they don't have the resources to to work individually with these kids. So we're working one-on-one with a kid for four hours versus a kid who maybe gets 20 minutes of the teacher's time individually, and then they have to kind of learn from the group, they're not going to make progress as fast. Interesting things. I saw a quote earlier that I wanted to maybe close with. If you guys want to elaborate, great. It says, you cannot remove autism without removing the person altogether. And so I need to understand that the point of these treatments is not to remove the autism, which I don't think is possible anyways, because my understanding, it's the wiring in the brain. So if you had to, Stephen, say what you think the point is of ABA for your kiddos, what's your objective there? So, so you make a great point, Jen. Autism is a lifelong condition, so there is no removing the autism. We can minimize the signs and symptoms of autism as we continue to build independence, communication, by you know having appropriate intervention services. These clients, these patients can become productive members of society. And so that's really what we want to do. We want to promote independence. We mm-hmm. want to promote respect because the more that they can do for themselves, that promotes their dignity and their right to respect and privacy so that they can meet socially significant growth and have a socially significant impact on their lives, you know, their lives and their families' lives as well. Love that. Indeed. So about that. 
Well, Stephen, thank you for elevating us with the knowledge and thank you for what you do with the kiddos. Can't wait as April unfolds with all this wonderful information, just the connections we're about to make. It's going to be great. Well, you know us to take the elevator. We say look up and let's elevate. Every day.